Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, this is a total treat. I met Nico back when he was a little kid. Now he shaves every day. Uh, he is the captain of the U.S. amputee soccer team. He's climbed Kilimanjaro, so we're going to have to compare some notes on climbing Kilimanjaro. His was a little bit before mine, so I guess I was following behind him. He was third in the state of Massachusetts in wrestling when he was in high school. Uh, is a teacher and a coach now, so coaching both soccer and wrestling. The other thing is, I, I checked out some of your stuff on, on YouTube, Nico, and you have your first goal, your first high school goal has 2.4 million hits. That was a pretty sweet goal, though. I mean, that was your first goal, but that was a pretty amazing goal. Hey, thanks. Yeah, that was that was the only goal I scored on the varsity team. And I, I rode the bench for the whole year. So it wasn't. Um, so, yeah, it was it was kind of a special moment. I didn't I wasn't scoring a lot and it was a pretty sweet one. So <laughs> it was a really sweet one. We'll have to we'll put it up so that people can get a chance to watch it. But it was off a corner kick. I mean, it, it, the description was that it was a full volley, but it was really sort of a cross between a full volley and a bicycle kick in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, I think if I, you know, if I had two legs, I would be almost doing a full split to get my leg up that high. So the crutches get you, it made it possible. Yeah, somewhere in between the two. I don't know. Not doing any flips, though. No. Well, I mean, you did do some when you were doing throw-ins, though. Sure, sure. <laughs> doing the flip throw. So you played with crutches, you played with and and you played with crutches your whole life, right? Just uh, so regular forearm crutches, they're padded on the bottom. And and you did have a little bit of pushback initially, right? That it, that it was slightly dangerous wearing the crutch using the crutches. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a really interesting looking back on it. I feel super lucky. You know, my, my dad went and advocated for me um, in front of all these people to, to say, you know, we want our son to be able to play, um, you know, Americans with Disabilities Act type of thing. And he was my number one advocate. So we had to, yeah, we had to fight for me to be allowed on the field because, um, you know, the crutches do present a potential, well, first of all, it's a potential weapon. So, you know, I have to have my temper in check. Um, and then, um, yeah, just in general, I think that there's some people who are traditionalists and it's, you know, I don't want to see this tainting the game, I think was an attitude that a lot of people had, um, or at least a few people. And then my dad padded them, went and I, I distinctly remember, I was probably nine years old when this was happening, but in front of this big room of people, all old guys, like older guys, you know, looking down and my dad had this padded crutch and he was just whacking himself in the head with it to, to you know, demonstrate that it, it wasn't dangerous and we could make it work. Um, and now I don't remember the the details of the conversation, but um, looking back at something, it's like you know I'm I'm lucky that he was there for to do that for me, and it, it paved the way for a lifetime of soccer. But you fell in love with soccer as a little kid, didn't you? Do you remember the first kind of your first thoughts of like this is my game, this is what I want to do? It's funny. I don't I don't think so. I my older brother and my dad played. And, you know, we, we were wrestling, we were, we were playing soccer, we were doing 
we were doing sports ever since I was a little kid. And before I realized that I was, I thought I was different, I think. Um, so it, it was the, uh, yeah, I was just playing for my whole life. And then I think starting to play amputee soccer when I got older and realizing that I was um, able to play at a high level internationally, then it became a huge part of my identity. Um, throughout high school, I was pretty, pretty close to quitting a couple times because it, um, particularly there was this moment where I stopped touching the ball with my crutches when I learned about the official rules of amputee soccer. Right. And I immediately got way worse because <laughs> it was like, and I think that was one of the things that people took issue with the issue with me having crutches on the field. Um, so describe that. What is, what is, what are the rules with regard to crutches in amputee soccer? So the crutches are considered the same as a hand. So if the ball hits the hand, play on. And if it's an intentional use or an unnatural position, then it's a handball. Um, and I made that transition when I was going into high school. And then remember thinking like, wow, I'm really, this is hard. Why, why did I pick this as the sport that I want to play? You know, it's like, this isn't suited for a one-legged person amongst two-legged people. Um, but stuck it through. And then, yeah, that, that goal was definitely the culminating event of my high school career because it was the highest level, the highest competitive level I played at in the able-bodied game. And then I got to score that one sweet goal. So it was, it was definitely a special moment. Did, did that blow up right away? I mean, it's right now it's two and a half million hits on you and that's on one version of it. There are a variety of different versions of that same video. Did it blow up right away? Did you become famous? In a... Yeah. Yeah. It was in overnight. It completely changed my life. I mean that, um, yeah. Yeah. I remember scoring the goal and then going out to a dinner to celebrate with my parents, like, you know, just kind of regular. And then, the next day, realizing that it had hit, my coach posted the video, and then it was it was going viral right away. Um, and then it was on ESPN top ten plays. It was the number one play for I think a week. And yeah, I I was also at a crazy point in my life with some other stuff that was going on. So it was a really uh, it was it felt dramatic. You know, it was just full of it was tense and yeah, some highs and lows that that year in my life. So it was. But yeah, that, that goal ultimately led to a Powerade commercial the following year. Um, and just, it, it shaped, yeah, when I think back, it's like that really, scoring that goal really shaped a lot of um, what happened later on. Isn't it amazing how one moment can, can affect so much? Yeah, yeah. And I don't necessarily know if I realized that it was happening when it did, um, but, and, and whether or not there's been those same moments in the past, I mean, Kilimanjaro was another one, but they're, you know, they just, they come up and then whether or not you rise to the moment, I guess. And in that, in that case, I, I hit the ball, right. I hit the ball square. So it, uh, it worked out. So did you ever, did you take any direct kicks or anything like that? Cause it looked like, I mean, it certainly in the, it was at the Powerade commercial, right. Where, where they have you taking a direct kick and, and it looked, it looked pretty legit. I mean, it looked like you, you had a legit direct kick. That was a legit direct kick in some ways and, and not others. Um, <laughs> no, I wasn't the direct kick taker for the high school team I was on. I take the free kicks for the amputee soccer team that I play for now, but um, wait, should I let you in on the secret of what was happening in that, that video? I feel like it's, we're, we're far enough past that I, I, don't, I don't see there any, being any issue with it. Powerade's not gonna have a problem with it now? 
no, no. They didn't give me the lifetime Powerade anyway, so okay. it's, it's going to be fun. No, it was, that was my high school. It was the year after I graduated um, that the Powerade commercial kind of came together. And then that free kick was from a scrimmage against the high school team that I had just left. So it was, we were wearing our away and our home jerseys and it was our whole team just playing against each other. Okay. Um, everyone had to sign the release forms. So it was, it was staged in some senses, but you know, we were playing soccer, we were playing a scrimmage and yeah, I, and I hit a nice free kick on that one, but. Um, and the end result was, you know, it was basically like you ended up in the corner, in the, in the far corner. So was that the end result or was that editing? No, no, that, yeah, that was a real shot. And I think that might've been the first take too, which is, which is funny because later on, after I did the Powerade commercial, I went to meet um, in Barcelona. I met Andres Iniesta, who, um, you know, is a world renowned Spanish soccer player and, you know, an incredible free kick taker. And all of these different, um, not all disabled athletes, but athletes that have faced some sort of challenge in their life were featured in this, um, Powerade kind of World Cup series of commercials that they had done. And they flew me and one other person that was featured out to meet Iniesta and play soccer with him, which was like an absolutely incredible thing. And, you know, got to take a picture with him. And I got to, he didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Spanish, but he kind of coached me taking free kicks. And I distinctly remember not being able to hit a single one when I was standing with Andres Iniesta. And he was saying, kind of just like intonating what I should be doing and I was like why can't I seem to to pull this out right now um but yeah the one in the Powerade commercial it, it was I think it was the first take so ah, it's very good. nice yeah as much as you wanted to, in, to to impress him that that often is the hardest part to be able to get that right kick but then it's even harder oftentimes when the camera's on you so so you're one for one for two really as far as so you went from being because you started you started in youth soccer, right? I mean, you started in youth soccer and and went the whole way up. Were you like eight years old when you started, or were you younger? I think I was younger. Um, I might let me try to dig up another picture. There's there's a photo of me playing with right after I got my crutches um, in the mud, and I think I was five. Um, and that photo was featured in a newspaper article, and that's actually how the amputee soccer team ultimately heard about me for the first time was through that um, newspaper cutting. And then they reached out to my dad and got me involved in the team later on. Well, that's the funny part because you you were just playing soccer, right? You were you just wanted to play soccer. You didn't know about amputee soccer. Did you know about Paralympics or any other sports like that? Or was it just kind of like you were going to do the sports you wanted to do? I think it was, I was doing the sports that I wanted to do. and like I was talking to you earlier is I, I definitely, as a person, I definitely pushed back against identifying myself as a person with a disability. You know, I was kind of, um, you know, thought that I was not, I don't know, not disabled. It's like, I, yeah, I have one leg, but was kind of my mentality, um, which I think was really helped me get to where I am now in a lot of ways, but it's also been interesting growing up and you know, coming more to terms with is like, yeah, you're disabled and, and that's okay. And like, it should be something you should celebrate at the same time. So, but no, growing up, it was, I don't want to go to camps with kids with, with uh, limb loss or limb difference. I want to spend time with um, heteronormative, able-bodied people. 
in my trying to, you know, have that be my own image. Um, so yeah, and I don't really know when the distinct moment was when I grew up and kind of came to terms with my own identity in that sense. Well, sometimes it's an ongoing process as well, right? That, I mean, it's not necessarily just a disability. It is coming to terms with our identity in so many different facets, right? Where we're from, who our parents are, you know, what we'd like to do, what, what our actual voice is. I mean, trying to develop these things is a real challenge. Socially, was sports a really important part of your life? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that it, it was, it leveled the playing field in a lot of ways is how I felt, you know, it was, I don't want to be seen with pity and I don't really want to be seen as um, disability first. I just want to, you know, a person with a disability rather than a disabled person. Right? right. So I think that the, yeah, I, I found that when I played a game of soccer, the, connection I felt with people afterward felt like it went beyond disability on a more human level than it was before. You know, I think in the beginning of a game, if I'm playing out in a way, in a way game, the team's coach is probably saying something like, it's really great that they let him play, huh? Let's take it easy. Right? Nope. No one wants to be the kid to, you know, hurt the guy with one leg playing on the, on the team. Um, but then afterward, I think there's that just level of respect that uh, game respect game, you know, we're all here to play. We love the sport and we can, we can move on from it in a, in a lot of ways. Well, no one wants to be the guy who, who hurts the guy with one leg, but no one also wants to be the guy who gets nutmegged by the guy with one leg as well. Right. I mean, I think kind of, I'd imagine it leveled the playing field pretty quickly when somebody, when you, when you took somebody on and beat somebody and they went, Oh, okay. This guy's going to make me look bad. if I don't try. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, okay, so he he is demanding respect in this moment, you know, like I, it's he's playing the game, and and here we are, we're playing together. What was the transition like to go from playing in high school where you were playing with all able-bodied people, you were the only one out there with crutches, to then playing amputee where everybody has crutches, so you have what is six aside, right? Six aside and a goalie. Yeah, seven aside, six field players. Okay, so you've got 14 crutches per side. And and I mean, it take, they take up space, right? I mean, it's just, it, it changes the game to a certain extent, doesn't it? Definitely, definitely. There's a, a lot of things that changed. And I mean, it was a completely a freeing feeling to play amputee soccer for the first time. Um, you know, instead of, because I was always the, the slowest person on the field um, growing up. And I had to adapt to, to be competitive, which was basically like distribute the ball really well, see the field well, um, you know, play quarterback from, from the midfield. And, you know, I was a defensive liability for my team. Like I wasn't playing defense, you know, because I would get beat. And I wasn't taking guys on because even if I made a nice move, they would catch up. So you didn't have the speed to get past them. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then playing amputee soccer for the first time, I realized like you can be an all-star in this sport and you're the fastest person on the field right now and you can go, go score goals. So it was like a totally total identity shift as a soccer player. Cause beforehand I was trying to, you know, I, I 
I had a lot of assists in my um, high school career. And I think that I turned, you know, I had to make my identity a goal scorer when I joined amputee soccer. So it was, uh, yeah, that was a special, special moment. I flew down to Mexico and played for the first time. Wasn't sure how I would stack up against other people and realized that um, I could be really, really competitive and, and, and lead the U S team to, to some wins. So it was, it was so fun and continues to be an absolute blast. Was that just an eye-opening experience when you realized, hey, I'm actually, I'm used to not be, I'm used to being, you know, one of the slowest guys on the field, uh, a liability, as you said, to suddenly being a huge asset. How did that shift the way that you look at yourself on the pitch? Because you're still on the pitch. It's the same deal. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it took some time, but I think that um, after the first international match that I played in um, the next tournament I was made captain and then started kind of leading the team from the field um, so it yeah I don't know and I was you know I was a leader in a different way um, on the able-bodied teams but I, I don't know it's something that I'm, I'm still coming into and figuring out you know how I can continue to get better and how I can you know lead the teams to wins and can we just take a step back on the speed? You said you were the slowest guy on the field when you were playing back in high school, when you were playing with the able-bodied athletes. Is that straight line speed? Is it side-to-side -side speed? Is it all of the above? I would say it's all of the above. I think my 10-yard um, dash was pretty comparable to uh, two-legged players, but certainly the um, lateral movement and full field sprints and direction changes was just, you know, no, it wasn't close. It wasn't a competition. <laughs> now, the people you're playing with on the amputee soccer side, did they have a similar, have they had a similar experience to you? Did they grow up playing able-bodied soccer or did they grow up playing, playing uh, amputee soccer? It's a mixed bag. I think that I am in some, not in the world, but for the U.S. team, I'm in somewhat of a unique, unique position. Um, there are still others who are joining and we're finding now, but um, certainly no one played able-bodied soccer on crutches um, for the amount of time uh, that, I, that I did growing up. Most people either walk on a prosthetic in their daily life or, you know, and some, and some of the players lost their leg um, in the last few years, for example, right. and then they transition onto crutches when they play amputee soccer. So being a daily crutch user and a lifelong crutch user, that's something that across the world, people who walk on crutches full time, they have an advantage in the sport because, um, you know, it's just, it, it's moving around. It's, it's the most fundamental thing. So, um, but there are certainly other people around the world and some in the United States who have played able-bodied soccer on crutches and um, have a similar background in that way. And, and so for you, you, it was a congenital thing for you, right? You were born without a leg and born without a hip as well. That's right. Yeah. Right hip. So, so it makes it easier. Like using a prosthetic is, is a pretty difficult proposition when you don't really have a hip or you don't really have a stump, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for my parents, I, I, well, okay. So I started walking on a prosthetic when I was three, um, took my first steps and then, transitioned to forearm crutches when I was five. Um, and yeah, I think that a lot of people who have um, high amputations or don't have a hip or hip disarticulation prefer forearm crutches. 
as a mobility device because I, I'm, you're just lugging around a leg at that point. It's like not comfortable. You, you're twisting your trunk to, to operate it. You know, each inch you go up in an amputation, the less efficient a prosthetic will be. So, and it's interesting. I, yeah, there's been times where I'm on a plane or something and a prosthetist will come up to me. This has happened, I think, three times. I say, we can get you off of those crutches and onto a leg. And I'm like, I, <laughs> thank you. But um, these, really, these work a lot better for me. And there's something interesting, I think, just in terms of um, image with trying to appear heteronormative in a sense, right. right? That it's like the preference is for you to walk on two legs because that is, you know, that's how we, how we are. And I think the crutches, you know, I mean, even just in terms of vernacular, it's like, oh, he uses that as a crutch and it's kind of got a negative connotation, right? So yeah, there's been some interesting stuff with that. And I think, you know, it would be, I would love to be able to walk on a prosthetic leg when I get older, but I don't know if the technology will be there for the point to, for it to be um, all that efficient. You know, my shoulders, they ache. It's like, we're not, not built to walk on our arms. So it's, um, that's another thing kind of coming to terms with being a disabled person is like, you know, I might need some new other tools in the toolbox at some point, whether that's a wheelchair or a prosthetic. Right, exactly. Well, part of it is that you're using limbs for your mobility that weren't designed for your mobility. So shoulder issues, but then there might be other attendant issues if you had if you had a prosthesis where where you know might be back issues or or different things like that where you're trying to trying to move the prosthetic leg and yeah. Is how, how are your shoulders holding up? My shoulders are holding up relatively well. I actually, a couple of years ago, to, probably close to five years ago now, I ended up having PRP therapy, platelet replacement therapy on my shoulders, on my left shoulder, because I had crashed ski racing with my arm extended over my head and, and tore, didn't tear anything completely, but tore everything really. And, and so, yeah, it worked out great for me. It's, it's back to, to mostly normal, but it's also mostly normal as an athlete where it, it, you probably see this too, where things hurt more when you stop than when you're continually working out and continually moving. And, and that can be the, that can be the biggest challenge, right? And the biggest, the biggest uh, recommendation is to continue to move. Like, don't, just don't stop then. That seems like a better idea. So, so, you know, I mean, that, that's something that we all, that we all deal with. What's the, so is there any hope of getting amputee soccer into the Paralympics? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there, we, you know, we've been um, submitting formal petitions to have it included. I think that as of now, the last that I, heard is that we have three types of adaptive soccer in the Paralympics. Um, blind, actually maybe four, blind, deaf, CP, and power chair soccer. Right. I might might have one of those mixed up. But um, the, I think that the perspective is we ought to include other adaptive sports before including a fourth or fifth type of adaptive soccer. So, you know, badminton or whatever it is. And it's expensive to get these Paralympic sports up and going. Um, based on the accommodations that are needed and organizationally. So, but the, the, 
the state of amputee soccer internationally has been absolutely flying, flying, flying. It's countries are building super robust programs and more and more teams join every year and more and more countries are forming domestic, um, in some cases, professional soccer leagues. So that all looks really good for the Paralympics. And I'm hoping uh, I can still be, you know, my shoulders will hold up for when, uh, when that day comes because it would be great. I mean, it totally sucks right now, Chris. So like our whole team is our professionals and some other thing. And it's, you know, I'm a teacher. We, we have people all over the country who you know, need to take time off from work and pay for their plane tickets and pay for their hotel costs in order to represent the U.S. at these tournaments. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't sit right. And it's just like, we're really, we're really working hard to get regional teams set up and some other things, but um, cer certainly the organization has come a long way since I've joined, especially in the last two years. And the pandemic really shut things down where we had a big, a lot of big plans and we're, we're regrouping now. What's where, who's your affiliation with? Is it, is it with the, with the able-bodied sport? It, are you completely independent? Are you, are you connected in any way with the Paralympics, even though you're not necessarily a Paralympic sport, but wh where are you, how are you affiliated? So we are the American Amputee Soccer Association and we have um, received some support from U.S. soccer in the past. Okay. Um, but for the most part, we're independent. And, you know, we just did a, a popcorn fundraiser for paying for tickets for our whatever comes next. And um, so, yeah, we're, I would say we're mostly independent, but uh, there's, the weird thing is people are excited to help the sport grow and, and kind of move things into the next stage. And it's, this is something else that I've been trying to focus on in the last, you know, since finishing my education is let's get this thing up and running and, and connect the right people. And, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement across the country and it's just about connecting the dots. It's always the challenge. And the challenge in that is that one, you said, everybody's a professional in something else. You're a teacher, that's how you make your living. You're then an athlete and, and to, to do those two things is hard. And then to try to be an organizer and a creator of a movement adds as a third element to, to, and it just makes it really difficult to do. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a challenge to be successful in that. Yeah, we, I think everyone in the organization wears many hats and has a lot going on. You know, I mean, the, the president of the AASA is the head of Stony Brook University's prosthetics and orthotics and a father of four. And, you know, he's busy. <laughs> we, we need to, we need to find um, the funds and, and the ability to, you know, make that a full-time position for somebody who can, who can then take it on and, and everyone works super hard at it, but it, you know, if it's not your, how you're making your living, then it's, it will ultimately become secondary. What's your feeling and the feeling, I mean, you, if you can speak for the other players, the feeling of ownership that you have as well, though. I mean, it's like it, the responsibilities on you, isn't it? Do you feel like the owner of the sport and, and that you have, you're responsible for making it work? I, I think it varies. Um, I think a lot of guys have 
you know, we have some guys on the team who are also running this AMP One stand-up basketball um, organization, which is super cool. And, you know, they commit some time to that. They commit some time to amputee soccer. Um, it's definitely, it definitely varies. And I think it, it's something that I want to take on full-time um, at some point. And I'm not sure if that, you know, I still need to teach and, you know, pay the bills, but I would really love to just do this full-time in, in the near future. So, um, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. And people, people have their heart in it for sure. And it's just a question about, um, can we, you know, can we find, can we find the time to, to do this together? And, you know, how do we prioritize, um, people putting app soccer first in their life? If, if, and if you're paying the bills else in another way, then it's going to be, that's going to be tough. I, I want to, we'll loop back to the sport stuff eventually again, but, but you mentioned teaching and is teaching something that you, that you had always wanted to do? Is that what you figured out that, that you, I mean, you said you just got your master's, right? Uh, some master's in, in education or. Yeah. Yeah. Master's in education. And I, I had a really great experience during my senior year of high school where I took kind of an alternative education program. And it was the first time where I, you know, I really loved going to school. And, you know, it, before that, it was like, what, what hoops do you need me to jump through? How high? I'll do that. And then well, let's move on to the next thing. And then when I did this uh, kind of like more experiential interdisciplinary type of program, I fell in love with um, school and knew I wanted to be a teacher after that. Uh, so yeah, that's, I mean, what was that? 2013. So eight years ago, and I've been in school, preparing to be in school <laughs> since that time. And um, yeah, I, I definitely love it. And I'm still, I've taught full-time for a year now and it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work, but I, I really enjoy it. What's the thing that appealed to you as far as teaching? What, what made you wanna be a teacher? I think for one, trying to facilitate young people having a positive experience with school and with, you know, taking it outside of the perspective of it's for other people, you know, like that your grades, it, their grades are not, it's not about your grades. It's about what you take out of this and where you're going to head with it. Um, so I think trying to organize those types of experiences, which can be really hard in the way we have uh, education set up right now, um, particularly with all this Zoom school, Chris, I my background's in environmental education. So like, it's, I feel like it's absolutely absurd that I have managed to find myself as an online teacher in a lot of ways, but um, we're looking forward to the next year when it's, we're back in person. Um, yes. And then, yeah, the other thing is just, I, um, I feel happy and lucky and fulfilled when I come home from a day teaching. And that's, that's how I want to spend my time. So I think that, um, just feeling like I'm doing something that is both for me and for other people um, and putting my you know, life energy towards that is something that, um, that drew me to the teaching profession. You said earlier that you didn't, you didn't identify as disabled or didn't want to identify as disabled as a kid growing up, but there had to be a part of it where you were, you know, I mean, you're pretty observant, right? You, you figured one, one of these doesn't look like the other so you had a different experience in some ways than, than your other 
than your other classmates, right? Than your peers. Is that something that informs how you are as a teacher and how you relate to the students? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I, let me think. I think it's not that I didn't identify, it's that I, it, it wasn't the first, I don't know. It's like, I wanted it to not be the only um, thing, the only thing, you know, I wanted it to be part of it. And I think that a lot of times, you know, being physically disabled, it's the first thing that people see and notice about you. So it can be hard to feel like you're, that you fit in. So I think that that was kind of why, where the pushback originally came from. As far as, I, I think that in some ways it makes me well positioned to understand that, you know, people all have different challenges and that, you know, we're, there is no average person or student, you know, where we should design to the edges and we should make it so that everything is accessible to everybody and that, you know, you can shine in some ways and work on other things. Um, but I think it's, it's totally, it's another mixed bag with, um, you know, I'm physically disabled and I think that having a, a mental disability is a totally different experience. So it's something that, um, hopefully I can be more, you know, compassionate about and thoughtful about, but I don't know, I don't know exactly how to answer the question. I'm not sure. It's, it's one I'm going to think about though. Yeah. Well, so what's it like to come into the classroom for the first time? Because I mean, it's the hardest part, right? For a teacher that you come into the classroom and you want to gain their respect as you come into the classroom. Does this help you or does this hurt you gain their respect? You know, I don't know. I, I think that, <laughs> I'm not sure. I think that, you know, when your teacher comes in and they have one leg, it's kind of an immediate, like, wow. I, you know, I don't know, kind of a, I don't know if shock factor is the right word, but I think that maybe people are a little bit more attentive if that's the case. Could, I could be totally wrong. I'm not sure, but um, it'll, I'll, I'll let you know. I'm actually starting like this job at Lexington high school is starting in a week or four or five days. So I'll let you know, uh, maybe I'll ask the students, <laughs> did this gain, did, did this help me gain respect in the classroom or, or, or not? Which sometimes might not be the question that you want to ask your students as well. You know, did this help me gain your respect? They're like, you're still trying to gain our respect, buddy. You know, don't, don't, don't even mention respect. You know, you're not even supposed to mention fear, but, but that's right. Because you've been doing this online, haven't you? You haven't actually been in person yet. It's, I, I, I have been in person, it's, it's a hybrid model. So it's the teachers are in the building and then half of the students may or may not be in the classroom. Um, but yeah, I think this is how I appear for my, when I'm zooming into people, how I've zoomed in so far. So I think that um, there, for a lot of the students who I'm about to meet, they'll be like, oh, when I'm walking around, like, oh, wow, I didn't, didn't know he had a disability. It's, I've been in the same situation where I've done some speaking some speaking events and, and I've been talking about skiing in a mono ski or something like that. And if I don't have a visual, you know, by the way, I'm, I'm in a wheelchair, you wouldn't know, but by the way, I'm in a wheelchair, you know, and it's like, it's the same kind of thing where it'd be kind of funny when you, when you actually show up or when some kid sees you for the first time and like, Oh, I had no idea. Are you okay? And you're like, it's been my whole life. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> it's all good. We're doing, we're doing okay. Yeah, no, um, yesterday. Actually, yeah, yesterday I had, um, there, I'm setting up this new apartment where I'm moving and the um, man that came to set up our internet, like I was playing the piano at the time. And then when I stood up and then he started laughing, was like, 
I had no idea that you had one leg and now let's discuss this. <laughs> it's like, okay. Well, which is, which is the challenge sometimes, right? Because, because it's different for him. He's never, he's never experienced it. So there's, the, there's a genuine curiosity. Whereas for you, you've lived it your whole life, but it's almost like you have to, you have to explain it to other people. Is that, is that a challenge or is that an opportunity for you? That's another great question. I think that that's something that my, where my thinking has shifted a lot as I've grown up. Um, in, yeah, I have a close friend who, I, I remember I was, I was golfing, which I love and um, hit a shot. And the guy standing on the tee box behind us was like, that's a good shot for a gimp. And I was like, and I kind of gave him a hard time. I was like, dude, shut up. Like, I don't, you know, why do you, why do you have to say a gimp? Just say it's a nice shot, you know? Like, and I gave him a hard time for it. And my friend just came up to me. He's like, look, man, he's like, he's trying to give you a compliment. I know that sucks that you're like, you deal with that all the time, but it's coming from a good place. So I think that as I've gotten older, it's something where I try to shrug those off. And yes, it is tiresome to have to speak about being disabled all the time. Any, you know, anytime you're meeting somebody new, right? Um, but yeah, I try to approach that with the idea that, you know, when people hold open the door for me, they're doing it because they're trying to be kind, even though I don't need it. Um, and that's something that's, I think is important to remember. And I, you know, I think it eases the, uh, what can be kind of painful about being dis disabled is that sticking out part of it all the time, but yeah. Right. I mean, you don't want to have people call attention to you that, that, that they have to hold the door for you. And effectively, you don't want to be pitied. But at the same time, we're all in that situation all the time, right? I mean, it's like, can, you know, we can, we can imagine what the difference is between, between genders, between races, between socioeconomic groups, between educational groups, you know, and it's like, it, it, we, have, we have our differences. And when we call attention to to those differences it, it can be it can be uncomfortable but we, we you and i can be in that exact same situation just on the other side of it where where we make an assumption about somebody else that isn't necessarily fair and 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 i think that's that's where we've got to get right is to the general part where we go oh yeah all right yeah i understand that you're trying to be nice i understand that i'm trying to be nice you know as long as somebody's not giving you a condescending kind of attitude that's for sure for sure and i think it brings up this discussion around like intent versus impact and um and i think that that's kind of a hot button you know discussion and and um you know in a lot of identity politic type of stuff and identity just discussions around identity and i think for me i choose to focus on the intent that people bring by holding the door open for me or by saying, oh, I didn't realize that you had one leg. That's so like, I don't know. It's like, maybe you didn't handle that in the best way, but I do think that it's coming. It, I think I have a pretty good gauge on whether or not it's coming from a good place or if it's being you know, disrespectful. And I, I think that I have to a degree, a um, the ability to, to choose how I respond, to, to choose how it impacts me. And I take their intent into account. And, and the thing is that I think one of, the, one of the biggest problems, maybe you can affect this in school, is that we don't really get to learn how to ask questions of other people. 
And, and sometimes we are incredibly insensitive just because we're naive. You know, we're, I mean, you can call it ignorant to a certain extent, but it, but naive might be a more, a, a better way of looking at it, you know, just in that it's like, oh, you know, I wanted to ask that question. I just couldn't figure out how to do it well. So I asked it anyway, and I did it badly, <laughs> but. It's tough. Yeah, I know. I think um, trust, trust gives us slack where we disagree. So, you know, maybe before asking uh, something that might be a question that could upset someone getting to know them a little bit more and then like, you know then here's something that I've been thinking about and wanted to ask you and I'm not sure how to do it in the right way and you know that's showing your intent as like I'm trying to respect you as a person here and I don't want to 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 upset you and I, I think that that's that's a good way to go about it exactly how is it so you're you're coaching as well so you're coaching and teaching is coaching something that you really wanted to do or was that, did that come hand in hand with teaching? Um, I think, yeah, I think it's something I, I've wanted to do for a long time. It's, it's just so fun. Games are so fun. <laughs> like let's, let's play games. And, and, and yeah, so I love doing that. And right now I coach um, a wrestling team with one of my best friends from high school and that's been great. And I've learned a ton from him and yeah, I'm not, I don't think I'm the greatest coach right now. Like I'm, I have a, a ton to learn as coming in from a player to being a coach has been, has been hard. And, you know, I'm in my second, my sophomore season um, as a coach and, you know, looking back on the last two years, it's like, wow, you, uh, here's, let's look at what not to do. And then uh, let's try to improve on that for, for the coming season. But it is, it is really fun. I love, I think that, um, school has a big focus on content and you know what's in the book and what we're learning about. And I think that it's the life lessons of sports and of teamwork and joy and all of that that comes from sports is something that it's just, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a privilege to share that with young people. It's so fun. The between the lines kind of learning that you get to do in sports has being a coach made you a better athlete. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think, I, I think I'm looking at sports in a more tactical sense and, you know, from the bird's eye perspective more than I was before. And I don't necessarily know if that's going to be an advantage or a disadvantage. I'm, I haven't played competitive amputee soccer in a year. So I, uh, maybe a little more. So yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. I'll get back to you on that one. Do you get out there and play with the soccer team and do you get on the mat and wrestle? Yeah, definitely with the soccer team. And, uh, you know, this year, I mean, I just got back from wrestling practice tonight and it's, there's no contact. We're in a gymnasium shooting basketballs and doing push-ups and pull-ups for the most part. Um, but yeah, yeah, I do. It's been, it's been a good way to continue to touch the ball and to, you know, stay in shape. So, um, where yeah and a lot of times finding other opportunities to play is a little bit few and far between who who are your heroes in sport uh for sure anthony robles who Who's was um okay had, yeah he's a congenital um hemipelvectomy same disability that i have um from arizona and he um, yeah, he won college NCAA college wrestling at 
125 pounds. So he was just an absolutely elite athlete. And um, I got to take a clinic with him in wrestling. And he's like, oh, here's, here's what to do, man. Like, here's the, here's the secret of, of wrestling on one leg. So for him, and I remember, yeah, we took a, he, he toured the country after he won um, college nationals, putting on clinics in, I think, not, maybe not all 50 states, but a lot of states. And we drove to see him and then we drove him to the airport afterward. And I remember the dude had a, a duff, like almost a duffel bag sized bag full of books. And he just, just like grabbed it with his hand and then walked off when we, we took, I was like, okay, this guy is just an absolute monster. So he would, he would definitely be, he would definitely be up there. I think, I don't know. I'm still a sports I love watching sports. Yeah. What part of his philosophy did you, did really appeal to you? I don't know if it was a philosophy necessarily, but just the power of the example okay, uh, being profound in that sense. And he, you know, he was also just a, I, we, we had, we shared such a similar background um, in terms of like, you know, having the same disability from, from birth and kind of, you know, playing sports with a lot of people for our whole lives. Um, so to see someone be really successful at that was, was a powerful example for me. Yeah, well, I, I guess, I mean, I was watching a bit of, of a video on him on his NTA championship. And, and he was talking about how wrestling, that he enjoyed wrestling because, because it was a sport about maximizing your strengths and leveraging your strengths and trying to minimize your weaknesses. And, 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 and to me, that seemed like something that, that appealed to, to what you're doing and then also watching him wrestle and watching you wrestle, where especially like in the in the first, uh, you call it the first round. Is it I, my my terminology? Period. First period. period. In the first period, yeah. when you're when you're both up, you know, and you're both standing before before one one is up and the other down or whatever. But uh, but when you're when you're you're in the standing position where you guys were both in that crouched type of position where you're really more in a in a kneeling kneeling and almost steering kind of position, which, which looked really, uh, I, I could see where you had the strength there, where you could maximize the strength. Cause you probably, I don't know what, what weight did you wrestle? I, I wrestled at 106 pounds and then 113 pounds. Okay. Um, and well, yeah. And you're totally right. I mean, as far as a sport for it, that is an example of a sport for an amputee where you can be elite you can be elite amongst able-bodied people because um all that weight that's missing from your leg is you know you're going to wrestle in a weight class so i guarantee anthony robles could probably bench press twice as much as anyone in his weight class at that time you know or do you know i think i think this number was like he could do a hundred pull-ups in a row so <laughs> you know yeah it's just kind of in you know he's carrying less weight um to do those pull-ups but he yeah, it's an example of a sport where you could, if you can figure it out for yourself, you, you, you can be, you can be elite. So that was, yeah, and he, he totally figured out. In fact, kind of thinking back on the discussion we were having in the beginning about um, crutches in the soccer league and how they were kind of, there was some pushback. He, they changed the rules of wrestling at college for, in, literally to limit his ability. Basically, like, I won't go into too much detail, but a certain type of, um, called a tilt which is a top position move where you 
score back points. And then they made it so that you had to release the tilt in order to score the points um, because he did it so effectively at that level that they thought there's, you know, we need to like patch this bug, you know, that, you know, he's broken the, the sport, um, so, which is just another interesting thing. It's like, wow, a one-legged person, you, you feel like you need to change the rules of the sport because this guy is too good. <laughs> so it's like flipping that paradigm, which is, which is great, right? We have to, we have to accommodate the able-bodied people because this one-legged guy is beating up on them. Pretty much, yeah. That's that's the highest compliment that he could possibly receive, right? I think so, yeah. Uh, which is great. Now, what? So, with with the with the athletes that you're coaching now, you just came from wrestling practice. What's? I mean, granted, granted, you're not able to do the stuff that really qualifies as wrestling practice right now. But what what what's the message that you're trying to that you're trying to teach them? Because you approached it from a little different angle than all of them would. Yeah, I think. Well, in in this year particularly, I think it's let's move our bodies and get off of our computers and um, you know just have fun, try to have some fun together. <laughs> um, but yeah, in the in prior years, I think it's just that you know there's a lot to learn from. From yourself when you go into something like wrestling you know it's a really it's it's not a pleasant sport you get you get beat up you get mushed into the into a mat for you know hours for months in a row um and yeah it just it helps to build you know how you respond to those types of moments is there's lots to learn there and i think being the coach for wrestling particularly is like let's you know let's push ourselves to be proud of, the, of ourselves every time we come off the mat and every time, like at the end of the season, what we accomplished and, you know, how you've grown as a person. Um, and I think wrestling potentially more than any other sport is really uh, suited for that because it's not pleasant. <laughs> it's not a pleasant experience. Well, it's not pleasant. There's nowhere to hide. There's no one else to blame. It's one-on-one. -on -one. There's not even a ball involved in the whole thing or anything. I mean, it, it's just, it's as pure like John Irving talked about it because he had been a wrestler, the, the writer had been a wrestler and, and, and he talked about it being the most pure sport. And I guess in a lot of ways, even going back to the, the ancient Olympics, right? I mean, that's, that, that was one of the original sports and the way that you proved yourself as an athlete. Can we talk a little bit about Kilimanjaro? Because both you and I have climbed Kilimanjaro and you said you did it in 2007? Yeah, yeah. Let's and talk about Kilimanjaro. Totally. Why did you do it? What what made you want to climb Kilimanjaro? I had um, there was a tradition in my family where my dad or my mom would basically take uh, one of the kids on a coming of age adventure of some kind. So this was our basically our you know coming into adulthood kind of type of thing or teenage years. Um, which was, you know, we were really lucky to be able to do. And my brother went cave uh, exploring in Belize. And then I had seen a documentary called Emmanuel's Gift. I don't know, have you, have you seen it? Oh yes, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, and um, just a brief overview of that is Emmanuel was uh, an amputee from Ghana and he, you know, essentially, you know, through the power of his will, 
bikes across Ghana, do, does all this fundraising, gets raises awareness, and then he bikes across Ghana in order to raise money for the free wheelchair mission, which um, provides low-cost wheelchairs to um, people with disabilities across the world, and, and particularly in the developing world. And low-cost, really low-cost. I mean, yeah, like fifty bucks dollars kind of thing or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it's a lawn chair essentially um, with bike tires and a few nuts and bolts, but it's providing like an absolutely incredible, you know, life-changing experience for people who, yeah, I remember just, you know, seeing people crawl in the dirt who, who didn't have, were, were unable to be in a wheelchair. And just the, the culture around disability that I saw in the developing world and elsewhere was, you know, it was very starkly different than the experience that I had had growing up where um, one being from privilege where, you know, my parents can afford um, forearm crutches and a wheelchair and a prosthetic. So I had those mobility devices from a young age. And I remember being totally stunned by um, the state of disability elsewhere. And um, Emmanuel, yeah, Emmanuel did this incredible fundraiser. And then I saw that and wanted to work with the same organization and then used um, Kilimanjaro as the um, the stunt to the event, um, and yeah, just the symbology of climbing a mountain had a, you know, a powerful image to it. So I asked friends and family if they would uh, donate. I think it was a cent per foot of uh, ascension that I went up, and then in the end, raised something like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and got to deliver twenty five hundred wheelchairs to the people of Tanzania. So that was. Um, why Kilimanjaro? I don't know. I think my dad also wanted to go hike it. Um, and yeah, so I don't, it, it came together in an interesting way. And I think that looking back, it's like I was just a kid and, you know, I was 13 when I did it and I would, I would love to go back. I'm much more into hiking and adventuring now. I, I remember thinking distinctly, like, this is so boring and like, are, are we going to walk again tomorrow for that amount of time? And that was kind of like how I felt when I was there. And you know, I didn't realize how lucky I was. So I, I think that it would be, I would love to go back and do it again. <laughs> so a little background for people, Kilimanjaro, 19,340 feet high. You started about 6,000 feet at the gate. So about a 13,000 13, plus foot ascension, which is actually more than from base camp to the top of Everest. So it's, right? yeah, so it's the tallest freestanding oh. mountain in the world. And and you go through five different climate zones. You, you start in a rainforest, you go through the heathers, the moors, the high desert, and you finish on an Arctic climate zone on the glacier at the top, depending. I didn't, we didn't have any snow when I did it. So I wasn't, I did not come in contact with snow at all. How long did it take you? Do you remember? Did you do the regular, the regular route, the prescribed number of days kind of thing? We did the wrong guy route, okay. um, which was um, not the traditional route, the Coca-Cola route, right. or I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but the, um, the other, this one came across the, um, up the other side and you hike up, um, there's three, it's really three volcanoes. Right. And then went on the Kenya side, the wrong guy route, right? I think it's on the, I think you start on the Kenya side. That could, that could be right. I'm not, I'm not certain. But um, yeah, we hiked up one and then you hiked across the saddle right. to, um, to, to, to the summit. 
to, to climb up the rim of the, the final volcano. But um, it was, I think it was five and a half days up and then a day and a half down. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because the wrong what guy. About you? Was longer. So I actually did it twice. And I think the first time we did the wrong guy route, which is a little bit different just in that it's, it's more arid on that side of the mountain. So it was, so it was less of a pronounced difference from, from the rainforest. Cause we did, we did Coca-Cola, we did uh, Marangu, which is the Coca-Cola route. So the two most popular I think are Marangu and Machame. And so it's, so it's Coca-Cola and whiskey uh, are the, are the two most popular routes. And uh, Marangu had the, had the uh, the huts, so you probably went up uh, Rongai and then came down Marangu. Yes, and so so that's what I did. It took me six and a half days up and a day and a half down. So same kind of thing. Which that one really is more like five days total, where it's three days up to Kibo, and then they get you up in the middle of the night. You get up for sunrise, and then you come back down. I wasn't at the top. For sunrise which was a bit of a bummer but you know we we had some other logistical issues that we were sunlight was a good thing i didn't want to be hiking during the during the dark god that was yeah oh man that yeah how was your summit night i, I remember getting up at we also didn't make it um before sunrise we were late getting you know it took us longer but yeah how was your summit night I, distinctly i remember looking out and thinking oh my gosh as the sun rose clouds everywhere not like the peaks of Moenze, the other um, volcano, poking out and just being like, "Where am I right now? This is this is crazy." Yeah. So we actually, so so they usually go from Kibo Hut up to the top and then back down to Harambo, uh, which is about twelve thousand feet or twelve five something like that. And I went from Kibo Hut up to the Scree Field, so up to about seventeen thousand five hundred feet slept there then the next night we went up into the crater slept in the crater so my summit was actually like it looked like you you could see the top i mean you could see the top from the crater you could see the the signposts up there and it didn't look all that far but it was up around over and yeah and and literally the thing that for me was i felt like even though I could see the summit, I couldn't comprehend the summit. It's like so many things in your life, you feel like, okay, it's right there. And so I'm going to do it. And, and I, can, I can mentally understand that. This, it had become too big for me to understand. And I was just like, I'm just gonna keep pedaling. And I hope that I run into it. And literally it did. I asked one of the guys, my crew was setting up and I asked, asked our, our African guide, I said, well, I'd be able to see the summit from there. And he said, oh yeah, you'll be able to see it. And it was like, it was like 400 meters. And I had no idea. I was like, wow, oh, oh, like that's it. You know, was, how was it for you? Did, was it anything like that or was, was it easier for you? No, I, I, I had a similar experience to be sure. And also, wait, that is totally crazy that you slept up there at 19,000 feet, right? You, I mean, or maybe like 18, Five. that's super high up to be yeah <laughs> okay all right well yeah we we so the, the, what happened with um like as you as you summit or it, it's like a rim of a volcano that's tilted on its axis so you come up the short side and then you like hike around the rim towards the actual like the official highest point on the mountain and i remember um 
finishing, getting to the rim and then starting to hike around the rim towards the summit. And my dad got um, altitude sickness at that point. Okay. Um, so he had to be like, and we were halfway from the, the bottom of the rim to the top of the rim. So he had to be emergency evacuated with one of our guides just down the side of the mountain. Right. Um, the only thing you can do when you have pulmonary yeah, yeah. edema, cerebral edema, I mean, that's a worry. And so you just have to go to a lower altitude. Yeah, yeah. So he, I mean, and there was just a moment where it was like, okay, Nico, do you want to keep going? Or, you know, I'm 13 and it's like, you want to keep going or do you want to go down? And then my, I, I don't, it's funny, Chris. I don't even know if like, if I'm telling the story as it happened or if I've just said this so many times that this is now how it actually like lives it's in my mind. Now. Yeah, okay. But um, yeah, we, so, and there was also, like we shot a documentary about it and called Nico's challenge. And then I did a speaking, I was a speaker for probably like six years after that had taken place and showed the video and then talked about the, the event, but definitely over and over again said, yeah, my dad said, you have to summit for both of us. So um, go on without me. You know, the person who cut the documentary, you know, was making it as dramatic as possible. Um, but I do think that there was something like that where he, you know, he started, you know, becoming nauseous, losing his balance. And I was like freaked out. I was like, okay, this is, this is scary. We are very high up and this is my person. <laughs> um, and so he's he, yeah, that. Yeah. so he's supposed to be stronger than you. So if you see him with this difficulty, it's gotta be hard for you as a 13 year old kid. Yeah, I was more than anything, I was just really concerned because he was, you know, he was falling over. Um, so it was, it was like, that was very scary, but he did, I think he did say like, you should keep going. You should keep going. I'm going down. And then we split the groups. Um, and then from that point on, I was kind of just like, like you were saying, like, I don't know where the summit is. Like, I'm going, like, we're going forward. <laughs> and then we got up there, let's take a picture. And then down, down the side of the mountain. Um, so yeah, he didn't, I mean, he, he's pretty uh, upset still. I don't know if he's ever going to live it down that he didn't actually get to summit the whole thing. Um, he, he keeps saying he's going to go back, but maybe we can do that. Uh, maybe we can do that sometime. Yeah, no, I think you should go back. I mean, this literally was sort of the coming of age moment then. I mean, you had to, you had to be separated from your father and go on on your own. I mean, as a 13 year old, this is, this is the coming of age story. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. I mean, it, it, it was definitely a dramatic moment. And I think, um, yeah, I coming down afterward and then seeing that he was okay was definitely like, I remember going up, we, we had been hiking for maybe 16 hours or something too. It was like, we were, you know, we got up at, I think we got up at 11 PM to start the summit. And then we didn't reach the top. I didn't reach the top until maybe 10, 10 AM. And at that point he was already down. So then I had to go down like four or five more miles to see, you know, it's like, it, it is my dad alive? <laughs> like where, where did he end up? You know? So I was definitely like in a very strange kind of, um, we are going fast and just continuing at that point. And then he was fine and we, uh, and it was great. So. <laughs> and everything was great. And, but he does have to go back now. So, so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And then I, I yeah, I definitely remember, um, coming down the Coca-Cola route and then sharing a Coke at the bottom of the, of the thing and cheersing. And it's like, wow, this was, this was cool. This was really cool. 
it is and Africa is such a a different experience. I mean, just being there and being with the people and for you being able to donate wheelchairs and help people because you worked with free, free wheelchair mission, right? To be able to donate wheelchairs. Do you know how many you donated? Yeah, we, we ended up being able to ship, I think, a, a container, which was, I think it was 2,000, around 2,000 wheelchairs. Um, and yeah, I remember I went, I ended up going back and flying to Dar es Salaam to uh, participate in this event. Um, it, I think it was, not, yeah, maybe it was International or National People with Disabilities Day. Um, and they had people with disabilities come to this event and um, receive a wheelchair. So that was that was really, really cool to, to be, yeah, to see, like, yeah, again, I, I remember being there for the first time and thinking like, wow, if I was born in a different situation, I might, you know, not have the mobility devices that I need to live a full life. And I think that that was, not that people with, without them can't, but it's that, you know, it, let's get you into a chair and, and into a, a place where you can be mobile. Um, and just the dignity of being, you know, being upright, like farther upright and not on the on the ground was something that I thought was, that stuck with me for sure. And that was a powerful moment and, and felt like the, that the mission was complete at that point. Yeah, it's, it's not because we don't realize the, the opportunities that we've been given. I mean, oftentimes we're surrounded by a lot of people who are like us and assume that everybody's in a similar situation. So, so to be able to extend that opportunity to help somebody's life and just help them lead as full a life as possible, while you at the same time we're trying to lead as as full a life as possible. Let's let's just finish. We're, we've gone a little bit over, but let's just finish on soccer. What do you have? What do you have to look forward to this year? I mean, hopefully. Hopefully we move out of this COVID thing and you can actually practice in person, but is there anything on the horizon for you? Yeah, we, I mean, we are excited. We've got um, the, or, the, the US organization, the American Amputee Soccer Association is, is coming along at light speed. We're building regional teams across the country. So we've got a team in LA, we have a team in uh, Houston. We have a team that I'm running in Boston and we have a team in Long Island. And then we've got some other hubs that have people who are interested and we're trying to, you know, essentially develop youth programs and develop um, regional programs whereby people can practice without having to get on a plane. Um, and in addition, we've worked with uh, the MLS, a handful of MLS teams who are interested in sponsoring uh, what we have going on. So we played in Gillette Stadium um, at a halftime of a game. We played in the New York Red Bull Stadium. And again, it's like people are excited to help it get going and it's just about connecting the dots. So um, we're constantly looking for new people to get involved, whether as players, um, as part of our organizational team um, or just whoever wants to follow. We're, we're trying to, we're a grassroots organization that is working hard to grow and um, we're, we're a top 20 team in the, in the world and we're hoping to break into the top 10 at the next World Cup. And yeah, sky's the limit and we're just, hopefully we can we can get it done in the near future um just for selfish reasons because i want to continue to play um to be a part as of the organization it. comes along yeah yeah, yeah. you want to be a part of it when is the next world cup and when is the next like major competition so uh next world cup is tentatively set for 2022 in turkey okay. and um we have 
I, we were really close to hosting two tournaments last year um, prior to the pandemic. And we are just waiting for things to cool down um, until it's safe for us to um, host tournaments and travel to tournaments. So we, um, we've been fundraising, we're prepared to attend whatever comes next. And we're just waiting for the green light. Awesome. Well, good luck. Thank you, Nico, for, for joining us. It's great to reconnect with you after all of these years and so cool to see see what you've done. I mean, see you going from a little kid to, to now being, being an adult who's helping to shape and form uh, the future of a lot of other little kids, right? So uh, thanks a ton for joining yeah, us. Yeah, well, yeah, Chris, thank you so much. I mean, yeah, you're a monster for uh, climbing Kilimanjaro. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's been really cool. And yeah, it was definitely, it's been a long time, but it's it's great to reconnect and um, let's keep the conversation going wherever wherever it takes us next and keep me in mind if if I can help out in, in whatever way. I, I most assuredly will. And hopefully we get a chance to see each other in person. One of the things we do, and this program is based on our name tags program with my foundation, which is about the labels that we put on ourselves and others, which are often our limitations. And it's about resilience. Our motto is it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. So so let's stay in touch. We might even be able to come to your school or something like that. I do a fair amount of presentations in the Boston area. So, yeah. yeah let me um, let me let's see what I can do. I think um, they're going to have to see if they want to keep me in the first place, and then uh, if I can if I can pitch your name, I, I absolutely will. Well, I hope that the first part works out well that they want to keep it. I can't imagine that they wouldn't. So, good luck with that, though, because it is a tough time to be in education. But, uh, but yeah, and thank you for joining us. Thank you to the audience for joining us. If you didn't get a chance to see the whole thing, it will be on the One Revolution page. So you can go to the One Revolution page, you can watch it eventually. We will also turn this in, we will edit it a little bit and turn it into a podcast, which will be on the regular host where you've got Spotify and Apple and Pandora and Google and, and all of the places where you get your, get your uh, podcasts. So, and when you do that, uh, YouTube as well, you'll be able to watch it. You can, uh, hopefully you can subscribe and you can like, and the more you do that, the hopefully the more people we get a chance to see and, and reach. So Nico, thanks again, and look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you. All right. Take care.